Welcome to this broadcast of Advent Christian Voices. I'm the editor of Advent Christian Voices, Tom Logry, and tonight joining me is contributor Eric Reynolds and someone else who's written an article uh, for our website before on the Trinity, Nathaniel Beckford. Say hello, guys. Hey, everybody. Hey, Nathaniel, can you just give maybe a brief introduction to who you are for those in our audience who might be unfamiliar with you? Well, I'm a longtime Advent Christian, uh, born and raised, uh, spent a number of years outside of the denomination in Pennsylvania, where I was uh, attending Bible college and seminary. I'm now back in this in the denomination in the Heritage Conference, Eastern Massachusetts, uh, as pastor of the Alboro Advent Christian Church, and I'm currently serving as well as the president of the Heritage Conference. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you with us, Nathaniel, and per usual, glad to have Eric with us, I guess. Um, hey, you should be happy to see me. <laughs> I see some reason here. Um, so tonight we're going to be discussing the two articles that our Advent Christian Voices featured recently, um, one by Steve Brown, discussing where are the leaders of uh, tomorrow, I believe that was the name of it, and the other one was Seminary in church together, um, a response to that article by Mark Wolfington. And so we're going to be dealing with each article in turn. And I just, I'm going to offer up a really brief summary of Steve Brown's article, and then we'll go through it together and discuss some of the various highlights of that article. So in Steve Brown's article, he basically starts out by describing kind of the current state of, um, the educational uh, training program in among Advent Christians, which is pretty much defunct um, with the passing away of Aurora and Berkshire Christian College. But then he basically goes on to talk about how Western education, the Western form of education with colleges and universities, wasn't really the original way of the apostles. And he points to the local training that you see featured in Acts as being the way of the apostles and argues for it as being the better way, better way because it's original to the apostles, but also because it's not as costly um, as the traditional forms of education that are current in the West. Um, and he goes on to highlight specifically how the church acts as a hermeneutical community, um, wherein work coming together um, as the church body, we're able to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit and come to um, a better theological understanding. And he kind of puts forward as perhaps a superior form of understanding than might ultimately be attained in a seminary. Um, and then he also goes on to just talk about how serving in the church can help identify calling and his whole goal in this article is really it's to start a conversation. He's not he's not giving necessarily concrete X's and O's on how you're going to implement all this. But his intent in sharing this article is to start a serious discussion about changing the paradigm of how we develop leaders as Advent Christians. Um, so kind of dealing with each aspect of his article in turn, what do you guys think? And I guess we'll start, we'll start with our, with our special guest, Nathaniel. Um, what do you think about kind of his first basic point that 
Western education is not the original way of the apostles. Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by Western education, because Western education has changed many times over the centuries. And even today, when you look at it, there are many different ways in which Western education is done. If he is referring to a purely lecture model with no other method, then I, I would agree entirely. Uh, the methods used 2,000 years ago in the ancient Hebrew, Greek, and Roman worlds were not all lecture-based. Now, it certainly appears there was some lecture, but it wasn't only that. There was a lot of discussion as well. And as you look at the history of Western education, you can see that developing throughout Western education as well, most of the time. And that's something that I found interesting as I was reflecting on the article is just, so he's talking about how Western education isn't the way that education was originally done perhaps by the early apostles, but Western education really in a way comes from the church because Western civilization was basically <laughs> came into being because of the church. And so I guess when I think and when I'm looking at it initially, my thought is, is just kind of the system, even if we think that maybe it's gone off the rails in some ways, is the college university system kind of uh, a fruit of the church? I, I think it is very much so. And it, going back again, 2000 years, it is assumed by many that Paul was in Antioch before becoming a Christian. Uh, he had been in Antioch training, uh, based on what we're told in Scripture, uh, under rabbis. And it, Antioch was, in, in many ways, a, almost a university city. Mm. It was the educated city. It's, it's where the smartest and oftentimes wealthiest went to get their education, particularly in the Jewish world. I want to, um, at, at this point, I want to read, kind of, so he, he talks about how he doesn't believe that, um, he, he thinks that there's something that's problematic about the church trying to use what we understand to be the Western form of education today. And he tries to advocate for us returning to an earlier model. I just want to read a couple excerpts. These come from pages one and two. Um, under the subsection of a North Star guides the church leadership development. In the second paragraph, he writes, The Holy Spirit unfolded such a model in the early church through the teaching and practice of the apostles. This paradigm is meant by God to be a pattern for leadership development throughout the church era. However, it is not a detailed blueprint, but something like a North Star, a fixed point of reference um, for navigation. Ooh. And he's talking about that as being that which you see basically in Acts in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think uh, initially of that statement of identifying it as a North Star of sorts for the church? I actually, I think there's a, I think, uh, and I've had this conversation with others. When we look at Acts and, and the New Testament as far as the training of leaders and development, 
hermeneutically, are we looking at it as it being a macro picture or a micro picture? So when Steve in his article wrote that, that this was a North Star, he had me. I thought, that's terrific. That's what I'm thinking as well. This is more of a North Star giving us a direction, but not necessarily laying out a blueprint of this is how, you know, to, to dot your I's and cross your T's. And I think Nathaniel's points about Antioch and, the, and how Antioch was kind of a special place is important to look into the context of uh, of this particular um, text because he cites um, Acts uh, throughout his article. Um, but I think that many would agree that as a whole, Acts is, gives you a micro look at how the Holy Spirit moved through the early church, through the apostolic church. Few people um, would argue that it gives you a a micro look or or a detailed. You must do this. This is how you cross your T. This is how you dot your I. As when it comes to leadership development and other aspects of ministry. Mm. Well, he he goes on. To, yeah, yeah. Did you have any other? Well, I was just going to say I, I I agree. Yeah. He well, he goes on to try to get into a little bit of detail about what he thinks the particular benefits of that early church model is. Mm -hmm. On the second page, um, this would be under the section of now is the time for a fresh look. Um, he says, consider the five benefits for developing leaders locally. The church is one, a living context providing multiple teaching venues. Two, a dynamic setting to develop competencies. Three, a laboratory for effective gift assessment in ministry. And four, a powerful agency to affirm emerging leaders in the Holy Spirit. So I guess we'll go. Nathaniel, what do you, what do you think about that list? A living context providing multiple teaching venues. A, deny, a dynamic setting to develop competencies, a laboratory for effective gift assessment and ministry, a powerful agency to affirm emerging leaders in the Holy Spirit. Honestly, I, I think ideally, yeah, that sounds great. Ideally, that sounds great. And I, I do tend to be an idealist, but my idealism has shown me over the years that ideal setups like that don't always work. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. And so if it's done as individual churches trying to accomplish all of this, it's going to break down. If it's many churches coming together to accomplish all of this, then I think it works. Mm -hmm. Unless you have large churches and then potentially you have the possibility of making it all work. I want to throw another quote in here before we get to Eric's take on this, because I think it kind of builds on what you're saying, because he continues on into the section on hermeneutical community. And basically, conclusively, he says um, a whole... Uh, I guess the what he believes to be 
the strong point of trying to have this sort of hermeneutical community where you're doing this sort of training locally. He says in the last paragraph, he says, in a community serious about knowing the intent of God in scripture, leaders can develop reflective skills to become able Bible interpreters in their own right. Theology can then flow dynamically through the church. Emerging leaders will learn to value and exposit the truth through critical judgment developed in a church-based environment. So kind of taking that together with the five things that he cited as being the benefits of doing this sort of training locally, how realistic do you think it is, Eric? How realistic is it? it I think it depends on, on the church context. Um, you know, my church, I, I, I don't know um, how that would play out as I was reading through, because I thought he cited when he's, and I know we might get to Acts 13 later. Um, but something that was key was Antioch was a polycentric leadership style. So you didn't have a senior pastor in Antioch. You had multiple pastors, multiple elders. And I mean, I prefer the term elder to pastor um, because I think it's, uh, I think it gets to the heart of what a pastor is. And when you have this polycentric centric leadership of, of multiple elders, and, and he lists, you know, um, Luke lists them, uh, and I think it's the first or second verse of chapter 13 in Acts, you go, wow, man, I shoot, if I had that many elders in my church, we could accomplish all these things too. <laughs> and so so you have to look at that and you're going to go and you have to say well is that just an excuse for smaller churches in some sense yes but um we also have to look at it in context they were doing some dynamic ministry um but they had a lot of leaders and i have i think that the people who were at antioch were you know, a lot of them are new believers, right? So they just came to Christ. And um, with that, you get a lot of excitement, right? If you've ever been around someone who's a new believer, and I mean like someone who was just, their life was a wreck and all of a sudden God just saved them by, by his mercy and grace and they are rescued from everything. They are on fire for the Lord like no one else. And you can do a lot more with those people and they stumble and they fall and they have, you know, they get cuts and bruises and they get muddy and they don't talk like, um, you know, lifelong Christians. They don't act like lifelong Christians, but they're on fire for the Lord. So you can, you can kind of steer that ship that's going a hundred miles an hour and teach them all of these things. But if you have someone who has been in the church for 10, 20, 30 years, and sometimes even less than that, five years, a lot of times they get conceited in one sense. They think that they know it all. And it's just natural human tendency. It's not, you know, a, it's not like, oh, you dumb Christians. It's just, it's a human tendency that we have. Oh, I've been doing this for a while. And um, so when you look at that, it, it kind of changes what we can do and we have to look at our context. Is it realistic to do these things in my context or yours? Um, eventually, I think is the answer. I don't think the answer is, is no, but I think the answer is eventually. And it's a long road ahead. 
And I think as I was listening to your responses, I was considering my own use of the term realistic because I think the linchpin on the whole, um, I think the whole utility of the hermeneutical community is the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's the belief that the Holy Spirit is going to be working and revealing these things to those that go to scripture and study it. And I absolutely don't want to deny it. And however, I think like you were kind of saying in the end, it just means it's going to take, it might take a little bit longer. And so I think the question is, isn't whether it's possible. I think it is possible, but is it optimal? Is it op- really optimal to keep it so limited on on that really small local scale? Or would it be better, as Nathaniel was kind of suggesting, is to bring in other people? Um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, how do you – I think this is something that kind of popped out to me as I was reading his article, is that there's a little bit of this tension between the church – and a church, the difference between thinking about the church universal and the local church. Do you think, what kind of implications do you guys think that has in in terms of us thinking through what it means for, for education to be located in the church? I think it has serious implications. If, if we're focused on a church, the local church, then it's going to drive everything in towards that one location. It's going to steer how we're doing evangelism. It's going to steer how we're doing general teaching. It's going to steer our ministries. It's going to steer our larger uh, leadership training all towards the local church. But if we start thinking in the picture of the church, the broader worldwide church, then we start to see value in partnering with others, working with others. And honestly, as I see it many times throughout history, not always, but many times throughout history in the Western church, what was going on with universities and colleges and seminaries was oftentimes pastors coming together to work together to prepare the next generation of leaders. And so it was one way, whether it's the best way right now or not, it's something that we haven't quite got into yet. Uh, But it is one way that that partnership has been realized, that family of churches has been realized through further education. And while I'm on that subject, I think there's two other things that I I see going on there. When we look at local churches, especially where in our denomination, many of them are quite small, right? Mm, I think over half have less than 40 people, 40 or less people. That sounds about right. So if, if you have churches, if you have half the churches with less than 40 people, how many of those churches are going to really represent well all the spiritual gifts needed to really put forth a true leadership program to develop not just leaders within the church, but leaders to really be able to go out and be the leaders they need to be. You know, the leaders like those that came out of Antioch. If you only have 40 people in your church, the chances of you having all those gifts are very slim. But perhaps 
the church 30 miles down the road has some of those people that you don't have. And then another 30 miles down the road, there's some others. And there's certain gifts that can be used in other churches to help build up the people. And so partnering together can help solve some of those problems. Mm. And I think in some ways we've seen it institutionalized in the mm-hmm. seminaries um, that have really become kind of parachurch organizations. But I think they should be included under when you're talking about the church. I think they should be included under that umbrella. But one thing that Steve Brown uh, cites is that there's a problem, and that's that there's a very high cost to going to Bible colleges and seminaries. <laughs> As guys that have gone to Bible and co- Bible colleges and seminaries, would you guys agree with that assessment? Mm-hmm. Yes, my I wall- would. My wallet would. <laughs> Your wallet would, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I would agree too. I think the last time I checked, and I think Steve Brown points this out, is getting an undergrad in Bible will cost you about thirty to $35,000. And then you have to go beyond that and consider the cost of seminary, which I think for about – I think – with my seminary degree being half off at Gorin Conwell, it's going to be at about 20,000, but that means without it, it would have typically been about 40,000 for one degree. Um, and that kind yeah. of brings us, go ahead, go ahead. So, and you, the three of us have talked about this, but the, the listeners haven't um, heard us talk about this, but really what's key is this idea that, to be a pastor, you have to go to Bible college, you have to go to seminary, as if those two things are going to be what prepares you for ministry or for the pastorate. And although they are beneficial and they are they can be crucial to many people, um, what I like, what Steve talks about in his article, is an emphasis on competency, competencies. Mm. So... It, it, it's great that you can learn all of these different um, different aspects of theology and philosophy and all of this stuff. But if you can't sit down with a, a grieving uh, mother who just lost her child, um, then what use are you, right? So um, we're called as pastors to be with people. And what Steve accurately portrays is in the local church, you can find out if you should be a pastor or maybe you should be a professor or maybe you should just be an elder of a church who might teach some classes at the church. Right. So, um, you know, we look towards, we look towards the Bible college and the seminaries as if they're going to give us the answer of our leadership crisis. And we're, we're in a crisis in our denomination. And the answer is the local church. And that might mean, hey, your pastor doesn't have a Bible college degree, but maybe they're being mentored by some other pastors to help them learn the things that they don't know. I I, I agree that that's one of the really strong points I felt from his article, um, which comes under the section the church should be a servant community. And he says on the last line of that paragraph, it says, great is the disappointment when aspiring leaders discover they not they are not cut out for church ministry after all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is often sadly the case when you have students that go to Bible college and seminary, but they're never 
really hooked into a local church where they can get those experiences and they can also have those mentors there. And and so I think there's a lot of, um, I think that there's a lot of merit to what he's saying in this article about the need for the local church and having that part of um, a student's education, a pastor and training's education. Um, but well, and, I think just just a, just to cut you off, because last time we did this, you cut me off a bunch of times. So we have to look out for each other and those pastors who are being trained, um, who are coming behind us. Because man, I can't tell you how many times I've um, had something happen in ministry and go, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Like, I need to go do something else and I'll just be, you know, one of these people that pastor doesn't have to worry about in the church because, you know, I'm I'm leading my family. I'm doing all of these things that God has called me to do, but I'm going to go get a secular job. Um, and I think all three of us have probably felt that way at some point or another, but it's care. Um, it, it's care by others in our lives that we can use each other as a sounding board and say, nah, you're just a jerk, or they were just a jerk. You're just dealing with difficult people, or you're being a difficult person, but you know, God covers all these things with his grace and mercy. You're still called the ministry. Don't be a dummy. And I think that if, if we, if you just set someone in this church that has 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, and it's their first pastor, and it's a hard area. I recently had a conversation with someone who is prominent in our denomination, and, and they said one of the problems that we have with young, with um, younger pastors is that we're sending them to places that we should put older pastors that have the experience to deal with a lot of these issues in these difficult churches. But instead, we're kind of throwing sheep to the wolves. And then when they quit the ministry, we go, well, what happened? They obviously weren't cut out for it. And that's not necessarily the case because, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard of pastors come you know, they went to seminary, left for 30 years and retired and then come back and pastor a church and realize this was God's call on their lives. So we got to be careful and we really have to look at where, you know, where people are serving and, and make sure they don't question their, you know, when they do question their call, that they are being discerning when they do that. And not just like I get emotional and I go, I come home and I go. I'm just not cut off for this. It's time to look for a job. And I search on Indeed for six hours, you know? So, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, but we gotta, we gotta guard against that and mentor each other and and be there. So I, I absolutely, I agree. I think that's, I, I don't think, um, any of us would deny the need that, that any pastoral education that doesn't, include the local church and those mentors is insufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I think with this whole question of pastoral education is the question of, we need to maintain sufficiency, but we also want to have efficiency in that you can get things done. Some, you know, you can use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail, but it might not necessarily be the best way um, to get everything Done, and I think that comes especially into play when we're talking about the theological aspect, and that kind of introduces the whole question of you know, can you effectively replace the Bible colleges and the seminaries? And this really kind of brings in Mark Wolfington's article where he sees that rather than turning away from the seminaries, he believes that there needs to be a partnership between the church 
and the seminary. And the first part, and the first thing that he addresses in his article, which is a response to Steve's article, is this issue of cost. And basically, what he he says is that he believes that the the costs of going to Bible college or seminary can be addressed in three ways. One is through local sponsorship or compensation by the local church. The second is by creating scholarships on a conference or regional level. And he gives an example about how they've done that on the Western region. And then the third one is increased salaries and all pastors <laughs> like that, like that option. Um, what do you, what do you guys think of his assessment of, uh, our ability to try to overcome those high costs. Well, I, um, well, I, I, started, um, I started. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead first. Um, I think those things could be a help. Though, honestly, it, I, I don't remember if it was Mark or Steve mentioned in their article that it's the, the cost of a Bible education, a theological education, is on pace with normal normal secular higher education. And yeah, that was Marker. Yeah, it was. The, the way I read it in that article, I think you're right, I think it was Mark. The way I read it in that article, he was saying that as in order to make the point that, well, it's not really that bad. And yet, there is a growing consensus throughout the country uh, both in uh, among Christians and in the secular world, that the cost of higher education is going too high too fast. Mm -hmm. And so the cost is an issue. Uh, Mark, I think, brings up some great things that could help solve that. With what we have for resources, are we able to to come up with enough to meet the need with those methods? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll start with the last one, raising salaries for pastors. A lot of churches can't do that. Now, I know mine can't, uh, and I'm sure there are many who would say the same thing. Churches just don't have the money to raise our salaries, especially when you consider half the churches are under 40 people. And some of those under 40 person churches are, are doing everything they can to support a full-time pastor. And so that one, I think, in many cases, isn't even in the running. Uh, scholarships, I think, are an awesome idea. I, I think there is more that probably can and should be done. Will it be enough? I don't know. Hmm. Eric, did you have any, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I think Nathaniel stole my thunder, uh, but I kind of gave it over <laughs> to him, so that's okay. The third point is definitely the one that I think most, most readily. Um, sh sure, pay your pastor more money. Give him a million bucks a year. You know, um, you just can't do that. And and I probably – and I kind of hear his heart. I mean, he's a pastor. He's also a chaplain at, at Aurora. Um and we all live in different contexts, but I just look at my own. Um, I don't see anybody getting a raise. Nathaniel's not getting a raise, and Tom might be, but, um, you know, I just don't think uh, that 
happens all that often. Um, many churches are stretching their dollars as much as they can, and they're giving faithfully to the Lord and trust that the church is um, using that money wisely. The other two scholarships are great. I And I know other conferences are doing it. We're all from the Heritage Conference, and we've talked about a number of things that we can't really talk about here. Um, yeah, I agree. Two scholarships. Um, that yeah, who's gonna can't argue against that? I'm down. Yeah, no, I'm I I'm very interested in that idea, especially when you see things like with the arrangement that uh, Berkshire Christian College has with Gordon Conwell, where they offer a fifty percent uh, scholarship. If the region or the denomination could come together and try to offer you know, build things together, maybe even the local church. So you have multiple levels coming together. We don't have a ton of students that are, we don't even have that many pastoral candidates really kind of coming up through the ranks. So I don't think it would take too much to really defray most of the cost. So I was really interested in that idea. Well, it's um, also from, from an article that I read today um, as prep for, for this show. Um, I forget where I, who said this, but essentially uh, a lot of people are leaving their denominations to go to other denominations that will pay more. So uh, we're not only in a time where people are less denominationally loyal, uh, even amongst pastors, we have pastors who are far less denominationally loyal uh, because they see their, their mounting student loan debt and say, Hey, I can't take a, you know, a church out in the sticks that has 25 people. Yeah. They're God's people. And there's someone for that. But it's not me when I have, you know, $60,000 I get to pay off. So I'm going to go to a church that might have 120 people um, and and get a salary that would be commensurate with my education. And I think that really then calls for us as Advent Christians to be loyal to our pastors. If there's a tendency towards people feeling, well, I don't have any sort of loyalty um, to this denomination or to this region or conference, that means that we need to start being loyal to our people and taking care of our people, perhaps in a way that we haven't been doing it perhaps as well. Um, perhaps we've been treating our pastors too much like independent contractors who are just kind of coming on board. Um, in, in Mark's article, he goes beyond the costs because he's responding to Steve's article. And he, he looks at this idea of the hermeneutical community that he, that Steve brings up. And what Mark says is that he believes that he's had that experience of the hermeneutical community in seminary. And then he doesn't really believe that that could have been um, created perhaps as well in the local church because it's so, so often it's, it's very rare to have that ideal community exists. Very often you have people that are in the church and they're just working from uh, principles of common sense or things that they've heard from televangelists and stuff like that. And so he doesn't think that it's the ideal. You're not going to find that ideal environment probably in your local church to train a pastor, whereas you can probably get closer to that in the seminary and you can really have that hermeneutical community there. What do you, we'll go back to and start with Nathaniel. What do you think about that? Personally, I think the hermeneutical community 
at least at this point, can be built much better in the seminary level, as long as it is not divorced from the church. And, and I will say, and, and I think this is part of where Steve is coming from, he has seen over the years too many times when it has been divorced from the church, whether, mm -hmm. whether because of the seminary or the local church or the student. It could be any of the three or, or all of the three. But when they're not working together, you end up with a breakdown. When they're working together, I think you can end up with the ideal mix. It's like you said, in that place where you have multiple people who are studying deeply, very deeply, God's word in a way that many average church members honestly simply don't have the time to do under people who are also deeply trained in it and have a deep heart for it and there are a variety of these people you end up with a much larger broader community that's able to guide the future pastoral leaders i think much better but again i think the key is that the church must be involved and that goes for for churches wherever the seminary is located and the churches that the that these future pastors are coming from i think in both cases there has to be direct involvement Mm. And I think that's he doesn't go into details on how that relationship would necessarily be worked out. But I think that is the ideal of his article of seeing a partnership between the seminary and the church, because you do want to avoid that ivory tower ten tendency where you have the theology separated from the church. Eric, did you have any thoughts on this front? Uh, several, but I'll, I'll just narrow it down to 10. So, <laughs> um, yeah, the. If the Bible college and seminary is, is divorced from the church, we have a problem, and it is. So we do have, and I think most people, including Mark, would agree, we do have a problem. Um, and I think one of those things is we don't have a, 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 a denominationally identified school. I mean, Gordon Conwell kind of because so many guys have gone through there. Which is wonderful, and we have an, you know, um, some classes that you can can take that are Advent Christian specific, uh, but that's really not a lot, right? So we don't have a lot of guys or ladies, guys and ladies publishing books or authoring different things. We have some, um, you know, Bob Mayer's book actually just went on sale today at uh, Gordon Conwell Charlotte campus for fifteen bucks, which is a steal. But you don't have yeah. a lot of guys and gals uh, writing these things. You don't. And the, what I love about some of the older material um, that I've been able to get my hands on is that it's short and concise, but thorough. And that it was an, an, a wonderful thing for me as someone who, who is new to the denomination and, and really trying to understand some of the theological distinctives. So, um, and it felt like, based on my reading of history, that these colleges that we once had were with the church. Like there was a stronger church connection with them, which is wonderful. Uh, 
But with with Berkshire and Aurora not really being Advent Christian colleges anymore or like they were, we do have different challenges. And as Steve puts it, gives us the ability to have a fresh look at what theological education should look like now. But if I try to go um, to my church and try to have a conversation with anybody about the different theories of the atonement, they're going to look at me like I got 10 10 eyes, right? So I have to go to guys like you and talk about different theories of the atonement and have these things because people, uh, let's face it, um, for many people, theology is boring. Um, they don't, uh, they divorce theology with loving God um, because we often treat theology as being very academic. And one criticism I do have, and I've shared this with you guys, is when we use terms like hermeneutical community. I, I had to rack my brain and say, what is a hermeneutical community, right? And I'm in seminary, so I'm trying to think about what is it, what is this really, what do we mean when we say hermeneutical community? Um, and when I share that with others, they're gonna, I don't even want to enter the conversation because I don't even understand the title of the, of what it is. So we have to approach things if we be part of this conversation. Let's talk to them at their level, right? So uh, when I needed milk, I was fed milk, but when I needed meat, I needed meat. And let's not put unneeded blockers in the way or, or stumbling blocks. So uh, we got to get past our theological, you know, ivory tower language that is terrific when it's guys like us, right? Um, but when we're trying to get people who, who are playing with building blocks um, and we're playing connect or the connect, I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore, but we, we really got to help bring other people along that might not know all the different nuances and different views of different doctrinal perspectives. I mean, in, in my church, I mean, unless, you know, how, how many of them really know what Advent Christian is? Um, my wife's a pastor's wife. She doesn't even know what an Advent Christian is. So, um, you know, she, when we talk about – what's that? I'm joking. I was oh. saying tis, tis. Yeah, well, you know, it's but I'm you know, I'm coming at it from a different perspective, right? So well, you're not my, from an Advent Christian background. I'm but my wife Advent, but I'm not from an Advent Christian background, nor do, like I look at the distinctives, I agree with the distinct distinctives, I think they're biblical, but I, I don't go, hey, I need to we need to wave this flag. We need to wave the flag of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I think that's how many people in our churches are. Um, now, there are some who are the diehard Advent Christians, and that's that's terrific. That's wonderful. We need those people. But we really need to have a conversation with our churches about what it means to know God. And truly what it means to know God is not just some emotional thing because you watched the Bethel music video, but it's because you're you're digging deep into the scriptures to learn who God is, how he's created the world, and how he's created created us. Theology. Uh, I will add to that, Eric, in saying that what you are talking about, I have seen as a problem as well, and a lot of that is on us as pastors. Mm. We have failed to educate our congregations. And I don't mean just to teach them a bunch, a bunch of rote theology, but to teach them the Bible in theology and what that then means for them. Mm -hmm. Or as Francis Schaeffer puts it, how should we then live? Mm -hmm. Because honestly, theology does matter. 
it does affect us. It's what we believe. It's what we believe about God. And if we don't know what we believe about God, are we really going to be able to live out the Christian life? And I would argue I think no. that's real. And what you really see that in Paul's letters, that's Paul's therefore. He lays out all this theology, therefore, and then right. it, it directs the way that you live. Um, I want to get us back kind of on point here and just deal with this kind of last point of um, Mark's article and talking about the, the service, um, a service, serving in the community. That was the point that Steve had made about how um, – having it, the education and training of a pastor located in the local church can really, um, it's, it's more beneficial and that seminaries aren't providing that. In response, Mark basically said, no, seminaries do provide that. He says that they often require, they usually typically require, require field education, uh, hours in the church. And he just shared about how that was his own experience. Um, what do you what do you think about um, Steve's critique and that response? I guess. Can I just say Can that just we're all missing, we're all missing the, the obvious answer? answer? Yeah, What's the that? answer? Yeah. Oh, okay. The answer is things like internships or associate pastor roles and things like that, where you can train. I, I mean, uh, Tom's living that now. I'm, you know, at my church. I'm not the senior pastor. But I can tell you that the the couple of years plus that I've been at my church, I've learned more about ministry and more about myself and even my family and people and everything um, than I ever could have learned in seminary, than I ever could have learned at Bible college. Now, have I learned lived or learned in the local church, um, you know, deep aspects of doctrine and theology? Uh, on my own reading, yes, but not. It wasn't really in a hermeneutical community as a, or as an internship or anything like that. Though I do have, you know, the senior pastor who's been able to guide me through certain questions that I have. But if we just op- if we have positions, if we don't just throw, if I would have been thrown into some of the churches that I know about, um, you know, two or three years ago, I'd be out of the ministry, man. I'd probably be homeless and. You know, with one of those cardboard signs saying, God bless you, Uh, I have a family, can you help me out? Because I would have lost my mind. But because I've had great mentorship and people that I can rely on that God's provided for me in my life, wow, the wonders that he's done for me, it happened in the local church. That That wouldn't have been possible if I would have just sat in my ivory tower at Gordon Conwell. Not that that happens. I mean, I still go to Gordon Conwell and I commute. But if I go to any seminary and just stay there and I'm not plugged into a local church more than, right, more than just a semester. I think Mark's Mark's point was that the seminary tries to, at least in their professional degrees, when you're talking about an MDiv, which is a ministry degree, it drives their students back to the local church in the best way that they can by requiring those hours now that doesn't even if they fulfill those hours that doesn't mean that they've necessarily done every as much as they should do um and And i think go ahead nathaniel jump in here a, a lot of that because of what a seminary and a college can and cannot do a lot of that comes down to what the student and the pastor they're training under 
actually make it. And unfortunately, neither party usually makes it what it should be. Mm-hmm. And so it, so this that system breaks down. The, the idea is great. Uh, I went to a different seminary from both of you. And for the professional degrees, they have a great internship program. I wasn't part of that because I took an academic degree instead of a professional one. I had to build I had to build my own internship. And I did. And it, it was great. And I'll tell you, in many ways, it really prepared me for where I am now. Uh, but I didn't really have anybody guiding me on that. And most people, if they're not really being guided in that, aren't going to really do it. Mm. Yeah, and it's asking a lot of personal responsibility, but it it's, I think in a lot of ways, it's calling on us, right, mm-hmm. as the church, is taking responsibility for these people that we're raising up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you're, I don't think you're ever going to lose those go-getters. Um, and, I, and I would say the three of us are probably those types of people that fit into that. They're going to pave their own way. They're going to they're going to find the answers and don't need anyone else to find the answers for them. Um, but most people aren't like that. So the people who are are later bloomers, and I don't mean people who are like in their thirties. I mean, okay, if, if if you're someone who really doesn't mature, um, you know, until late twenties, where you can find those things out on your own then you're going to be behind the power curve. But if you have people that are helping you along, and I'm not saying irresponsible people, I'm saying responsible people who are just okay with waiting for someone to tell them what they should um, And there's nothing wrong with that. They're going to get lost in the sauce. And then you have another dynamic where, um, and, and I think, and I know a lot of our leaders are really focusing on, on how to develop leaders within our denomination and helping um, place younger pastors and, and do all these things. But those go-getters are often going to leave the denomination when they see there's very little effectiveness, right? So um, if you see other denominations that are more effective in areas that you're passionate about, you're going to say, why, why am I here? Why don't I? Now, some will stick around. We've stuck around. Um, I actually came into this crazy fold willingly um, or by God's divine providence, depending on your theological persuasion. And uh, so I'm here, right? And, and we're all here. So we're here and trying to fix a lot of these things. But we need to fix them so that guys like us that come behind us will, ha- will see this vacuum and they see us kind of bringing them along and helping them flourish instead of them having to do it all on their own. And I think that means that we really we need to become a go-getter denomination. We need to be taking the initiative as a family of churches and coming alongside these people that we're raising up and doing a, exactly a lot of what Steve was saying um, in terms of the local church having a part. And and Mark was saying that as well, the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Um, just in, in conclusion, we'll start with Nathaniel. Can you guys just share perhaps maybe in relation to Mark and Steve's articles and then your own opinion, um, perhaps what do you think we need to do to try to um, mend our our pastoral training uh, situation here in the Advent Christian denomination? Maybe some initial steps. You don't have to have a full plan, obviously. That's good because I don't have the full plan for you. Uh <laughs> But I, I think what we need to do is 
is we need to start having a willingness in our church and a desire among our pastors to see the next generation brought up. And honestly, that's going, no matter what model we go with, is going to take a lot of work on the part of the pastors and the people in the churches. But it's important work. And oftentimes we, we look at it and say, it's a lot of work and do I really wanna to bother to do this? Maybe I have other things I can do. Problem is if we don't do it, then nobody's going to do it. And so we need to start being intentional about identifying the next generation who is coming up to be the pastors, the teachers, the elders of our churches. And we need to start guiding them, identifying, okay, what are their strengths? What are their gifts? What type of education is going to be most appropriate and best for them with how they're gifted? And be in finding ways to make sure that they get the education they need and training they need in order to do the calling God has placed upon them. Hmm. What about you, Eric? What are, what are some of your thoughts? I don't have any thoughts. You don't have oh, what? That's I'm just first. kidding. <laughs> you guys know me. When you ask for when you guys ask for my thoughts, I usually have you know an 18 month uh, rollout plan with uh, a 10 year projection and, and all that stuff. And it's all in a Google Doc, and I'll send you the link later. But we need to come to the table. Uh, one one thing, you know, I follow a lot of other ministries that are really exciting, and to be honest, more exciting than many of the things that most of the pretty much all the things that we're doing as a denomination, right? So, and I look at that and go, how did these get started? Why did God use these people for these things? Um, and I go, they were bold. They stepped out in faith and they were bold. They they had great self-awareness, understanding what their calling was and uh, what they were passionate about, what God was leading them to do. And they stepped out in faith and were bold. And I don't feel like we're there as a denomination in, in being able to do that. So we need bold, dynamic leaders that are willing to do that. And we need to be able to come to the table. We, you know, so we have, um, and I shared this in, in a comment. Uh, I, I believe it was a comment to Steve is I, I agree with his paradigm. I think it's wonderful. Um, and, and some of the places where he has gotten that from, I disagree with some of their things, but the paradigm, essentially, I agree with. Um, there are just some of the particulars that I disagree with. We need to be able to come together and have that conversation and say, let's work some stuff out. What can we agree on? What can we disagree on and move forward for the betterment of the gospel? But when we sit back and say, well, you just don't get it. Or if we sit back and say, uh, well, it has to be this way or it's no way. What are we doing? That's, that's our pride. And, and trust me, you guys know this. No one is more prideful than I am. And that's one of the greatest sins that is in my life. And I have to realize that I have to be able to step out of my shell and come to the table and not be a jerk, which is very hard. So we have to be able to do that, guys. And, and until we are, we're just going to be in uh, one of these tiny fledgling denominations that God isn't blessing 
because we aren't being faithful. And once we're faithful to him, um, I think that we'll see, we'll see a change. I think it really does. It takes faithfulness at all different levels to take. I mean, you start from within the local church and families being faithful and raising up their children and pastors being faithful to their congregation and groups of pastors being faithful and coming together and cultivating that boldness, pushing each other, encouraging one another. Um, because we know as pastors, it can be very easy to just get so consumed with what every, everything that's happening at the local level that we don't look beyond and figure out, you know, how can we come together? And so I guess my own word of encouragement to our audience is to be creative, to be innovative, be thinking about ideas, um, one of the things that I love about our history, even though there's points of our history I don't like, is just the innovative use of the press that they used in the Millerite movement. It doesn't necessarily completely apply to this situation, but I think it's going to take that sort of creativity for us to start getting ahead of the curve in terms of what we're dealing with here societally. We're dealing with um, very difficult, difficult circumstances. We're in a post-Christendom culture. A lot of our institutions are built for Christendom culture. And so we invite you. Um, Mark came, Mark read Steve's article and he offered up a response. I didn't ask him to do that. And so if you guys have ideas, please submit articles. Um, we'd love to hear your ideas. Can I just say one thing, Tom, before you, uh, I know you, you like the last word. But I'm going to take it. Uh, <laughs> okay. You can have it. Um, I just want to thank. I just want to thank uh, for their wonderful articles. Um, I mean, I think both of them were very thoughtful in, in what they said. I think they're were respectful, especially you know, Marx was a response to um, Steve, which is always difficult because you don't. You need to be careful how you come across, but. You know, getting to know Mark a little bit, I know, you know, his tone would have would have been extremely respectful. And I think it did come across that way. And I think that they both had excellent points. And I think they're a lot closer. And I think we're actually all a lot closer um, than we probably give credit towards one another. And, um, yeah, I think there are a lot of good things happening, man. I'm hopeful. And I know you guys are, too. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Eric and Nathaniel, for uh, coming tonight together to discuss these articles. We hope you all enjoyed it and it stirred your thinking. All right. Good night, everybody. Signing off.